it's a message to really shake the people up and say, because of your unfaithfulness, God will fulfill his promises. God had said, keep my word, keep my law, and I will be with you and you will be my people. But if you don't do that, I will take you to a land that you're not familiar with. Chapter 26 adds to this. There's a, a, an added message, a sequel. One of the commentators added to it. And Jeremiah reinforces this truth that there is going to be exile. And of course, as they find themselves in that place of exile. Chapters 27 to 28 see uh, Jeremiah confronting false prophets. Jeremiah doesn't have an easy life. I think if we've been following this series, we'll discover, we have discovered that Jeremiah gets it a little bit uh, now and again. And here's one of those moments. He, he wants to take on false prophets. He wants to take on those who are misleading people. And this evening we'll see in chapter 29 one of the responses to that, one of the challenges uh, to Jeremiah for taking this stand against false prophets. Chapter 29 is a practical letter to the exiles. It's going to tell them straight what God has for them. I don't know about you, but I quite enjoy the postman coming to the door because I like to see what he has. I like to get that letter uh, that has a, a nice stamp on it in a nice little envelope where you know there's going to be something encouraging in it. Hopefully a letter from someone overseas, although with email that's becoming less and less. Whenever I was uh, living and working overseas, post came a different way. You had to go and get it. You would have to go to the post office with a little key to a little box with a number on it, turn the key, and inside you would go to receive whatever mail was there waiting for you. And sometimes you got something better than an envelope. You got a little piece of paper. And that little piece of paper meant that you had to go round the corner to a little window, hand in your little piece of paper, and get a box. And in that box, you would get soda bread flour, chocolate, a DVD, something from home that helped pass the long evenings of homesickness. Of course, there are those bits of letters that we don't like getting through our door. They're normally the ones with the little plastic windows in them. I think we're all familiar with those, and we'd rather they didn't come, but, but they do. We're eager to see what the postman has for us in the hope that there's something good to come. The letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles in Babylon is a mixed message. They don't know whether to take it as good or bad, and later in the passage, we'll see how and why they're split this way. As we look at it, we would take it as encouragement, but because of the situation they find themselves in, it doesn't always come across that way. Jeremiah, we need to remember at this point, is the prophet in Judah. He is in Jerusalem. He has been left behind. So he is writing from his perspective in Jerusalem to the exiles thousands of miles away. And it's two people, we, we learn about them at the start, who are on a message for the king. King Zedekiah, the king of Judah, he's a puppet king. No one in Jerusalem takes him seriously. He dispatches two of his guys to go to the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, with a letter. And as they're walking past, Jeremiah quickly throws in this little letter to go to the exiles. So whether they go to the exiles before Nebuchadnezzar or after they see Nebuchadnezzar, this letter that we find in verses 4 
through to 23. This is the letter that Jeremiah sends to the people. But for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of the exiles. How would you define exile? Exile simply is being where you don't want to be. So for these people, it's not an easy place. Babylon is far removed. It is warmer than Israel. It is dustier. It's not as productive in crops. It's not an easy place to be. Nothing was familiar. The language was different. The streets were wider. The food, the recipes, the cooking, everything was so different for these people. There was a longing for the good old days. Let's get back and let's think of Jerusalem. How wonderful it was. We've had this read before. Christos made the jokes. I'm just going to go straight in and read it. Psalm 137 gives us an idea of what these people are thinking. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion, another name for the holy city of God, Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skills. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Here were a people who were taunted. A people who were told, put on a show for us. This great reputation of Jerusalem for its festivals and its, its celebrations, put on the show. And the people couldn't do it. This was written in memory of a time. Because ultimately that time would pass, and we'll see by the end of this evening that this was a rich time for the children of Israel that they actually did have Jerusalem as their highest joy, not as a city where they would rule themselves, but as the place where God would dwell with them. But Babylon, exile, it was violent and it was extreme. They were taken, they were transported, and they were set down in a place that was not familiar to them. Exile simply being where we do not want to be. And in that place, everything becomes strange. But it's in this strangeness that a new reality can open up to us, a reality of God. Let's explore how the children of Israel had a true understanding of their God uh, from this one letter in Jeremiah 29. For the children of Israel, it was very clear why the exile had happened. They had been told by prophet after prophet after prophet that if you disobey God, you will go. If you follow him and do what he says, all will be well. But if you don't, you will be sent away. And the problem fundamentally was that the people had given their hearts to other gods. They had decided, no, we don't trust Yahweh. We don't trust the God of our fathers. In fact, we're going to set him to the side. Oh, we'll pick him up again every now and again, dust him off and use him for when we need him. But ultimately, my heart is going to be given to another. 
And that's what these people had done. They had given their hearts to other gods. In exile, it was the best of Israel's society that had been taken away. It was the leaders. It was the thinkers. It was the artists. It was the musicians. Everyone who could cause a bit of trouble was taken away and put into exile and dispersed in Babylon. So who was left? Well, it was those who could offer nothing to society. Those that if you actually did leave them behind, well, they wouldn't get up to much. We can put our puppet king in and he can control them without us having to worry. One of these ones that was left behind, Jeremiah, proved to be exactly what Babylon didn't want him to be. But the people who had gone into exile, they thought often of those who were left behind as the ones who were blessed. They said, oh, do you remember if we could only get back to Jerusalem? How great it must be for those people who are there. How great it is that they are in the place of God's blessing. They had actually missed the fact that Jerusalem was being punished because of the unfaithfulness of the people. And where the people had gone, they had their religious, some religious leaders with them, or certainly as they saw them, religious. The truth, as we learn in chapter 29, is that they weren't religious leaders at all. They were setting themselves up to be the voice of God when God had not given them the authority to do so. They're called Ahab, Zedekiah, and Shemaiah. False prophets, false teachers who were leading the people away. In fact, rather than encouraging people, they were giving a false hope. Their message was the exile's not going to last long. At most, you're going to be in Babylon for two years, and then you'll go home. This is what these guys were telling the people, a false hope. And it was these people who stirred that image that the people in Jerusalem had it far better than the people in Babylon. The problem is that false dreams interfere with honest living. The people could never live honestly in Babylon because of a false dream that they had been sold. The people were not settling down. Why would they? Why would they want to build homes? Why would they want to think about marrying and having families? Why would they want to think about tending gardens if it was only going to be for two years? Why bother living the way that God had taught them when they could get away for it for a while? Before then, they would have to go back and normal service would resume in Jerusalem. The heart of the people being led by these false teachers was that they were glad for a religious reason to be lazy. They were happy they didn't have to do any of this. And it was justified by their religious leaders. It was great. A religious reason to be lazy. See, instead of the people being a blessing as God had always wanted his people to be, a blessing to the nations. They were in fact a parasite in the land of Babylon. And so in this context, this group of people who, who are trying to find the reality of God, the letter comes and we look at verses 4 to 9. There are four issues there that 
Jeremiah says to them. First of all, he says, build houses and make yourselves at home. This is no camping trip. You're not going to be here for a short while and then go. Build your homes and settle down. Start to live in the community. The life that they had at that point, God, through Jeremiah, was saying to them, is as valuable as it once was in Jerusalem and as valuable as it will be when you return to Jerusalem. So don't mess around. Just settle down and get on with living. Build houses and make yourselves at home. The second thing Jeremiah says is put in gardens and eat what grows in the country. He says get to know the rhythms of the season. Get to know when's planting and when is harvesting. Get to know what crops grow well and what soil and what don't. Learn how to feed yourselves and add to the economy. Produce your food and add to the economy, whether by keeping it yourself or selling it, but being strong enough and fit enough for the work that there would be around you. Don't become parasites. To God's people, he is saying in exile, put in gardens and eat what grows in the country. Then he says, marry and have children. The community must grow. There's no pause here on the community life. It must continue and it must grow. So marry and have children. And within that, in these relationships that will form within the community of exiles, but also within this country and uh, this uh, city in Babylon, trust must be deepened. The exiles must not be suspicious, nor must their captors be suspicious of them. Marry and have children. Really set down roots. And finally, make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon, things will go well for you. We've used this part of this chapter a lot recently in relation to our city in Belfast here as things have, have not been so good over the past couple of months. But here God is saying, make yourselves at home and do what is good and best for the peace and the welfare of this city. The word that's used there for peace is shalom. We would recognize that if, if we know much um, about the languages of the Bible. Shalom means peace. But it also has two other meanings. It means welfare and it means completeness. In this passage, peace, welfare, completeness. The people are to be proactive. They're not to sit back and just huddle in their own community. They're to be about the whole of this city, to be proactive in their engagement in Babylonian affairs, to bring this city before God, to pray for it. They are to throw themselves into the place where they currently find themselves. The message that Jeremiah sends, that ultimately God sends to these people is this. Quit sitting around feeling sorry for yourselves. The aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible, to deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty, act out love. You didn't do it when you were in Jerusalem. Why don't you try doing it here in Babylon? That's... Eugene Peterson commenting 
uh, on the summary of what Jeremiah is saying. Ultimately, we here in 2013 will face exile of some kind. Exile for us may not mean that we are transported to another nation, but exile in our personal life, in work, where work changes for us and we don't feel comfortable where we are in terms of being in exile, not being where we want to be. In our church life, church changes. Sometimes that can be hard for us as we try and and think of how we now live and work in this community of God. Death, separation, the strains of relationships that put us in a place where we do not want to be, exile on a very personal scale for us, exile in our society, the change of times, how quickly things are advancing for us, what the expectations now are of us in society, how we work and live in our social groups, What's the the key things that people are talking about that make us uncomfortable? Laws that we don't agree with, that are being put through parliaments and governments, being in places where we do not want to be because we would rather be somewhere else. New ways of doing old routines, all forms of exile that we face on a daily basis. The challenge that comes from Jeremiah is that We're sitting around, feeling sorry for ourselves. Is that how we respond? Are we going to be like the children of Israel in exile, to just sit around, feel sorry for ourselves? Or, as Jeremiah wants for his people, are we going to live as deeply as possible? Let me read that quote from Eugene Peterson again, but I'll stop before we get into the bits where it talks specifically about Jerusalem. Is God saying this? Quit sitting around feeling sorry for yourself. The aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible. To deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty, act out love. As a child in primary school, our teacher read to us The Hobbit. And with the movie that's been out, a lot of people have been going back to the books and flicking through them again. Tolkien describes hobbits like this. A hobbit lives in a hole and is a very comfortable creature. We know, too, because Christoph used the same example a number of weeks ago, but also as, as we have possibly have seen the movie or read the book, one particular hobbit decided that he actually wanted to leave his hole and get away from that place of comfort and go on an adventure. God doesn't want us to be people living in our little places and being very comfortable. He wants us to know his very best. He wants us to experience all of life Because in all of life, we find him. 
So the challenge that we must consider in every moment of life is are we living at our best? We have two choices. We either complain with what is wrong in the world or we get on with living and enjoy what God has for us. When we complain about life, we get stuck in a cycle. We, we never be able to seem to be getting out of it. We see one bad thing and then that leads us to another bad thing and a cycle uh, starts to appear and we just continue going in this cycle. And it has implications for us. It has implications for our health. It has implications for our relationships with those around us. But it also has an implication for our view of God. It begins to affect our worship of him because we begin to lose sight of who he is as we start to focus on the things that we see wrong with the world. Well, what about when we get on with living? What happens then? Well, when we get on with living, we begin to see what God has for us, how he is blessing us with what is around us. And we also begin to see how we worship him in all of life. Each day we face exile decisions. Each day we face the difficulties of life. The question that Jeremiah poses to us now in 2013 is, how are we going to deal with it? Are we going to deal with it by going into the cycle where everything spirals downwards? Or are we going to get on with living? Getting on with living may not be easy, but when we do, we begin to see what God has for us, how he is blessing us, and how we worship him in all of life. The last part of this letter in Jeremiah 29 is about invitation and promise. God says that he will turn up and care for his people. They're going to face this hardship, but God is going to be there. He's going to turn up because he knows the plans for his people while they are in exile. Ultimately, those plans are for their good and from which they will prosper. Let me take a little aside on this. It's been amazing this week the number of people who have come up with this passage. It's possibly the best uh, Jeremiah passage that we know and possibly quote. Jeremiah says in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The context of this verse is that this is what God is going to do for his people in exile in Babylon. His plans are to bring them out of exile 70 years later. His plans are that they are going to be a people who are deeper rooted in him so that when they return to Jerusalem, they will get their public worship in order. They will get their lives in order and they will get the city of Jerusalem in order. And that order is going to be God's order. You see, whenever we use this verse, we have to remember that this is what God is saying to his people in exile in Babylon. The truth is, God does know our plans. The truth is, God does want us to prosper. But God's prospering may not be what we think it is. We may think that God's idea of prosper for us is to have comfort in life, more money, a better job, more time. That's not what God has for us. God's prospering for us is exactly the same as the children of Israel 
He wants a deeper relationship. He wants us to be fixed on eternity because that's where we're going and we're sure of it. God never promises us comfort. And if we think that this verse promises us that, well, then we've missed it. You see, the people, what are they told immediately before this verse? You're to get on with living. You're not just to sit and wait. You're to get on with living. I have used this verse as a way of sitting back and doing nothing. Something's gone wrong in life. Well, I know that God has plans for me, so I'm going to sit back and I'm going to let him do it. God's example in Scripture is no, we are to be proactive people because we are his people. Yes, he knows the plans. Yes, he has his best for us. But we're to get on with living and living in the way that he wants us to. There's a guy we're going to meet in this passage called Shemaiah. He's near the end there uh, in the latter verses of the letter. Uh, around verses 23 and 24. It's verse 24 that we really get to meet him. What he's done is he has wrote a letter to Zephaniah, the high priest in Jerusalem. We get that in verses 26 to 28. This is what he says to the high priest. He says, The Lord has appointed you priest in place of Jehodiah to be in charge of the house of the Lord. You should put any madman who acts like a prophet into the stocks and neck irons. So why have you not reprimanded Jeremiah from Anathoth, who poses as a prophet among you? He has sent this message to us in Babylon. It will be a long time. Therefore, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. He's saying, with all due respect, high priest, why are you not doing your job? You are, a letting, you are letting a madman loose in Jerusalem. Get him in stocks. Get his neck in irons and control him. Because we don't like what he's saying. He's telling us 70 years. But we know better. We know that it's only going to be two. Get this man under control. See, in this letter, what he's doing is challenging Jeremiah's validity of being a prophet. He says he's posing as a prophet. Make it stop. Get him out of here because we don't want him upsetting our way of life. And that's exactly what he's doing by telling people to do all this stuff. Turns out that he in fact, is the false prophet. And Jeremiah goes on to say that he will be punished because of it. So Shemaiah, who wants the comfortable life, who wants the people to have this break from religion and just have a little bit of fun on the side in Babylon before their time back in Jerusalem, Jeremiah writes back and says, you've got it all wrong, sunshine. You are the false one. And you will be punished because of it. Jeremiah faced the the attacks on every side. But Jeremiah kept going. And he kept going because it was the reality of God in his life that he wanted God's people to see as they were in exile. And as it turns out, exile was good for the children of Israel. We don't see it here in verse 29, but I think we need to know it. 
Because as we go through Jeremiah, and as we will see in the history of the children of Israel, what happened to them in Babylon was for their good. For those 70 years, they had a discovery of God. They renewed their devotion to God. They got the law of Moses, they read it, they transcribed it, they populated it, and they proclaimed it. The people discovered the reality of God, and they couldn't have done it unless they settled down and lived the lives that God had for them where they were. For those 70 years, they had a rich texture of life in Babylon. Sanders, one a commentator, described it as the crucible of Israel's faith. It was here that Israel rediscovered its relationship with God. It was here that Israel discovered their place in the salvation history of the world. They learned how to love and serve God. And it turns out that in exile, they were preserved. They had fears that they were going to be wiped out, but no, in exile, they were preserved. It was those, in fact, in Jerusalem who were being punished for their sins. So as we finish, we must remember that we live in New Testament times. So what can we take from this letter uh, that we're reading in Jeremiah 29 for us today? How do we deal with it? How do we deal whenever we face exile? Maybe you've never thought of these transitions in life as, as being some sort of exile. After reading this, I'm becoming convinced more and more that, yes, those moments in life where we feel uncomfortable, where we feel that God isn't looking out for our best, those exile moments, how do we deal with them? Are we going to wallow in self-pity or are we going to live and see what God has for us. Because what does God promise for us? God promises that our good is ultimately eternity. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, this is God's best for us, and this is what he promises. He promises that we will be glorified. Glorification means that we will be with him. Perfect in his kingdom, in eternity. So God's promise is that our good is ultimately eternity. But God says that he's also provided for us, and his provision is in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In this provision, we have a hope for the future so that we can live in today. The letter of Jeremiah, it was received in Babylon by those who wanted to get on with living. And it was rejected by those who had followed false teachers and decided that they weren't going to settle. 
the letter that this is for us? Do we receive it as one that we're expecting an encouraging note from, from a friend? Or is it one of those wee envelopes with a wee plastic window in it that we don't want to see? We are called as God's people not to live comfortably. We're to quit sitting about, get on with living, because God is in all of life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what we are learning through Jeremiah. It is a book of its time, written for a group of people. But still, its messages echo to us through the gospel, that we may know its reality for us in these days. Father, help us as we deal with exile in our own lives, how we cope with the things that come at us. Help us to know how it means to live for you. Help us to be free from fear, to be free from self-pity, and to get on with living so that in all of life we will discover you and your best for us. Lord, we see that it's not going to be easy We naturally want to spiral and see what's wrong with the world. But by your grace, help us to see the future that you have for us in your promises, that Christ is our all in all, and that eternity is your best for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.